Our text this morning is going to be Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. And if you're asking what Romans 5 has to do with Christmas or the Christmas season, I promise you that it does. At Christmas, we remember the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, becoming man. But it's more than that. As we were reminded a few weeks ago by Pastor Tom, it's the story within the story that we're remembering why Christ came, that he came to save us from our sins, from judgment, from condemnation, from hell, from God's wrath, and to give us life. And today's message, today's passage will be a good reminder of that, and that as we exchange gifts this season, this gift is free. It's the freest gift that we could ever receive. So let's open up. I'll read the passage and then open us up in prayer, and then we will get into the text this morning. Romans 5 12 to 21, listen as we read the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth, and the truth sets us free. We thank you for this free gift of righteousness that abounds to us, overflows to us. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit will teach us this morning as we wrestle with the text, as we think through what it means for us, how it transforms the way we are to live, and how we view, above all, you and the free gift of the grace of knowing Jesus and having his righteousness. So we ask for your help this morning. We ask that if there's those who don't know you, that they would come to know you and receive this gift. And we ask that your saints would be sanctified. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we jump into the text, I think it's going to be helpful to do a quick overview of the first five and a half chapters of Romans to get the context of where we are at in the passage this morning. So Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing it to Christians at Rome. And he says that he's desiring to impart them some spiritual gift, meaning he wants them to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And in order to do this, he says he's eager to preach the gospel to them. That's an interesting concept, eager to preach the gospel to believers. 
But that's not that new of a concept for us. We do that every Sunday. Every Sunday we are going through a book of the Bible, and the message may be a little bit different. There may be more to learn, but it always comes back to Jesus and the gospel. And this is how Paul wrote all of his epistles. If you survey his epistles, you'll, you'll quickly see that the context of the letter may be different. The problems in that church or the good things they're doing may be different, but it always comes back to Jesus, who they are in Christ, their need for the gospel, and what the gospel has done for them. And Paul knows that, and he writes that the gospel is God's power for salvation. All of salvation start to finish. We always need the gospel, which is why we gather on Sundays to hear the gospel every Sunday. And he says that in the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that's important. We'll, we'll hear more of that as we go along, but it's important because Paul says God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which he will labor to say is everyone, Jew and Gentile. He says, not even one is good, no, not one. That no human being can work their way out of this. No one will be justified by the works of the law, says Paul. However, while God's wrath is against all, he has revealed his righteousness in the gospel to be received by all. He says in Romans 3, 24, 22 to 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Note that word gift, as that will be important in our passage this morning. Paul then goes on to show how both Abraham and David believed in justification by faith and also were justified by faith. They were not justified by the law. They were not justified by their works. They were justified by faith. And this is good news, Paul says, because as the scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we too, the Romans and us too, who believe in Jesus, crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, will be counted righteous. That's a promise from God. And not only are we justified, but we now have peace with God, Paul says in the beginning of Romans 5, that we even rejoice in God, even in our sufferings, because we know God's love for us. Paul says that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that we know this love because he demonstrated it for us while we were sinners. That while we were sinners, not when we cleaned ourselves up, not when we were ready for it, not when we were extra sorry or turned to God, but when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then he ends verse 11 in chapter 5 saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Which leads us to today's passage. Notice the therefore in verse 12. In light of what I've just said, Paul has been laboring that man is justified by faith, and now he wants to talk about how great this gift is. Why is it that we can rejoice in God through Jesus? 
And I think Paul's main idea for our text today is that the grace we receive in Jesus, namely the free gift of righteousness, far exceeds and abounds over the sin and death that we inherited from Adam and that is also our own. And Paul lays this out in today's text in the following way, which will be our outline for this morning. You have two men who are also two representatives. Then you have the two, two actions, the action of each man, what they did. And then you have the results from those actions. So this morning, we're going to look at the first man. We're going to look at his action and his result, and then move on to the second man. Look with me in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So Paul introduces this one man who brought sin into the world. Who is he? Well, in verse 14, he defines him, Adam. Adam brought sin into the world. And he's treating Adam as a historical figure. This is not made up. He sees Jesus and Adam as historical, real men who lived, who did things, and that there's consequences, there's results from what they did. In Acts 17, 26, it says, he made from one man, one man, Adam, every nation of mankind. What did Adam do? What was his action? Sin, he says in verse 12, or throughout the passage, he says, the trespass, one man's disobedience, or the transgression. So Adam brought sin into the world. But that's important. Sin came into the world. Sin was not created in creation. God did not design sin into creation. Adam brought sin into the world. And how did he do that? Well, if we turn to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, we quickly learn that he ate the fruit with Eve of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God commanded them not to do, not to eat. Notice how he calls it the transgression. Why does he say the transgression? I think he's highlighting that this is a major event, changing the course of history. This is known. Several years ago, I'm not a basketball fan, by the way, but several years ago, LeBron James, who is one of the, the best basketball players in the league, was a free agent, uh, and he was getting ready to make a decision about where he was going to go. And ESPN had a live event on TV where he would announce where he was going to go. Where, what was he going to do? Was he going to stay with Cleveland, or was he going to go somewhere else? And they called it The Decision. The decision. And as far as I can recall, that, this was unprecedented. You never heard of this in sports. Why did they call it the decision? Because it was LeBron James. And this could change the course of basketball. This could change who would win the championship, what would happen in basketball history. The transgression. This changed history. How? What happened from this transgression? Which leads us to the result. Death. Through sin came death. Or he says that the, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And this is exactly what God said would happen. He said that in the day that you eat of the fruit, 
you shall surely die. This is what God promised. God is true to his word always. And what happened with Adam, Eve eating the fruit, what God said would happen, happened. Death came. And God, God was freely gracious to them. You could eat of any tree. And they chose to eat the one that they were not supposed to, and death came. And we know that this is more than physical death. This is spiritual death, hell, eternal damnation, the wrath of God. He says that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. So you have one man, Adam, who commits one transgression, which brings death and condemnation. But that's not all. Before we move on to, to finish these results, I want to quickly note on verses 13 and 14. Paul says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What does he mean? Sin is not counted where there is no law. Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God passes over sin without the law. We know this. It doesn't take too long into the book of Genesis to see the effects of Adam's sin and then God brings a flood on the world because of the sin in the world. He looks out and says that the wickedness of man is great. And flood comes and he rescues Noah and his family. So, so we know that Paul is not saying God passes over sin. It's not, we should not be sitting here saying, oh man, if there was no law, I'd be cool. I'd be out of jail. That's not what Paul's saying. I think his point is notice how he says in verse 14, yet death reigned. His point is to show that even without the law, Adam's sin brought death, and death reigned even from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression. As we move on to, the, to, to finish these results, notice how he uses throughout the term, he uses this word or this phrase, the many or all and he says in verse 18, therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. What's he getting at? I think what Paul's telling us is that Adam, in his sin and death, we sinned and died. We inherited Adam's guilt and Adam's sin and Adam's death. He was our representative before God in the garden. I think that might be why he doesn't mention Eve. We know she was in the garden. We know that she sinned with Adam. But Adam was the first man created. He was our representative. This can be challenging for us. I hear myself saying, this doesn't seem fair. I don't want Adam to represent me. He failed. We would be arrogant to believe we would have done any better. But a few things need to be said. Having a representative is not foreign to the Bible. We see this in the Old Testament with the high priest representing the people of Israel before God. David understood this when he said, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that his parents sinned in bringing him into the world, but that he came into the world a man of sin and death. But even in our own day, we can, represent, we can understand this. Every few years, we vote for state representatives. And when we vote, a candidate wins. If you vote 
and the candidate that you voted for does not win, that candidate still represents you to make decisions and laws on the behalf of the state and the people. Even if you don't vote at all, that candidate still represents you. And that's what, Adam's, that's what Paul is saying here. By our birth, by God giving us life, graciously giving us life, we are in Adam and that brings guilt and that brings death. But then notice at the end, he says, the law came in to increase the trespass. So not only do we inherit Adam's sin and guilt and death, but we have our own innumerable, many transgressions. So when Adam sinned and death, we sinned and died. Then the problem goes from bad to worse because we have our innumerable transgressions. Paul says in this text that once he says death reigns and another time he says sin reigns. Sin and death reign. They are our masters. And this explains a lot for us. Why is there death? Why does anybody die? Why is the world filled with wickedness? Why are we never satisfied with those who represent us? Why do we always think somebody can do better? Someone has done better, by the way. Why do we always seem to fail? Why do I or you think, say, and do the things that we know are wrong in sin? And Adam is telling us the origin from Adam. It goes back to the garden. This does not make us feel good. This may not be the start of the Christmas message that we want to hear, but that's kind of the point. Paul wants us to see our dire predicament. He wants to see, to show us why is it that we can rejoice in God through whom we've received reconciliation. We're not just saved, we can rejoice and we need to know what we have been saved from. And Adam does not need to be our final representative. At the end of verse 14, he says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. There was another to come, our hope. We have an opportunity, if you will, to vote for a new representative, a final, perfect, obedient representative, which leads us to the next man, and his action and the results. Who is Jesus? Paul says, the one man, Jesus Christ. And he came. This is what we celebrate this Christmas season, that Jesus came into the world to become the God-man. But he didn't come into the world the same way sin came into the world. Sin was not created in creation. Jesus always was and is. He existed far before creation, eternally, with the Godhead. And Matthew tells us that he came to save us from our sins. He came to be the new representative for all who trust in him alone for salvation. But how does he do it? What was his action? Paul tells us it's his one act of righteousness or the one man's obedience what does he mean by that? Is he referring to one specific act that Jesus did? One healing, the cross, Jesus obeying the Father in the wilderness over the temptations of Satan? 
Or is he referring to his whole life? We read in the book of John that he always does what is pleasing to him, the Father. Or that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I think Philippians 2, 8 really helps us understand this, what Paul means by his one act of obedience. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I think what Paul is telling us is that Jesus' whole life was a life of obedience, even to the point of death, culminating at the cross. His obedience was final and complete at the cross when he died for our sins. In the garden, Jesus cried, may this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. I will obey you, Father, to the end, even to death on a cross. Jesus is our perfect high priest, the perfect representative who, unlike Adam, obeys the Father always, always. It's at the cross where Jesus takes our sin and dies in our place. It's at the cross where we find forgiveness for our sins, his shed blood bringing full forgiveness. What did he accomplish? What did the obedience his whole life, including the cross, accomplish? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him, in him we might become the righteousness of God, which is what Paul tells us. He says it's the free gift of righteousness, justification to be made right with God. How is it that that happens? We're in Adam, we have sin, we have guilt, we have death, we have nothing to bring. The scriptures tell us that. Who can say he is pure before God? Who can say he is without sin? So how does God take us and make us righteous? He tells us in verse 19, it is by the one man's obedience that the many are made righteous. It's through Jesus' obedience that we are made righteous. It's not what we have done. It's what he did. It's his obedience credited to us. And Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 53, that, that Jesus would be made, he would make many to be accounted righteous. Note how he uses this word, the free gift. In three verses, he repeats that word five times. And it's clear he's trying to show that the free gift is not like the trespass. He wants us to see how great and amazing it is, how free it is. He calls it a grace gift. In, in Romans 3, 24, it says, by grace we have been justified. It is a gift, Paul says. Grace is free. A free gift is free. It's like Paul is saying it's doubly free if there is such a thing. He wants us to understand that the righteousness that God gives us through faith in Jesus is the most free thing we can ever receive. We'll speak more of this at the end, but God's not looking for payback. He's looking for us only to receive by faith what he has given us through Jesus. But there's more. Notice how he uses this word abound, abounded, or abundance. Why is he using that word? What is he trying to say? He clearly wants us to understand 
that this gift abounds to us. That word means to excel or to exceed a fixed number of measure, to overflow. And I think Paul's point is that Christ doesn't just undo what Adam did. It's not a one for one. It's not that in Adam, sin and death, we sin and die, and then Christ comes and obeys and we live. It's that this gift abounds to us. It overflows. In verse 16, which I think explains this a little bit better, he says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, many trespasses brought justification. So one sin brought condemnation. The free gift in light of our many innumerable trespasses against God brings justification. That's, abund- uh, that's abounding grace. That is abundance. Psalm 65.3 says, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. We often sing on Sundays that our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And this is who Jesus is. In the beginning of the book of John, which we read on Christmas Eve, we read that Jesus is full of grace and truth, and that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not only is he full of grace and truth, he's not stingy with it. He gives grace upon grace. There is no measure to God's grace to us in Christ. There's no end to it for us. It abounds. He even says at the end, where sin abounds, where, where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. Sinclair Ferguson said, there's more grace in Jesus than sin in you and me. And this grace is not just abounding at the point of our conversion. Through Romans 6, 7, and 8, we learn about the believer's struggle with sin. And Paul starts chapter 8 after calling himself a wretch and who can deliver him but Jesus, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This grace follows us all the days of our lives. Notice in the beginning of chapter 5, he says that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in this grace. How do do we comprehend this? Do we believe this? I have a hard time believing that God's grace, this free gift of righteousness, is that free. This is a struggle sometimes for us, especially in the ongoing struggle against sin. But Jesus said he came to give life and to give it abundantly. So in Adam, we inherit sin and death and condemnation. Sin and death reign. They are our masters. But in Christ, the new representative, the final perfect representative for man, we receive abundant grace, this free gift of righteousness, the obedience of Jesus credited to our account so that sin and death no longer reign, but grace and life reign through Jesus. And this is received like any gift is received. We take it 
We lay hold on Jesus. We look to Jesus. We put our trust in Him. We do not rely on our works. We don't look to the law. We simply take what God has given us. As Romans 3 says, He put forward His Son to be received by faith. So what does this mean for us? What are the implications of this text? And there are several this morning. One is, there's only two categories of people. You're either in Adam or in Christ. There's no other option. There's no middleman. And everyone who is born in this life is born into Adam. And there's only one solution, to be born into Christ, to be born again. So where do you stand? Are you in Christ? Have you received this free gift? If so, with Paul, rejoice. Rejoice this morning. Far greater gift than any we've received these past few days. If you are an Adam, what do you do? If you feel the Spirit convicting you, if you feel the bondage, not only do you have your own sins, but you're an Adam. He represents you. There's no way out. Paul tells us, trust in Jesus. Acknowledge your sin and repent and turn to God. He casts out none who come to him. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will never cast out any sinner who comes to me. Trust his promise that he will forgive you and give you abounding grace. It doesn't matter your sins. It doesn't matter the number of your sins. Where many trespasses are comes the free gift of righteousness. Paul says in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. God is a God who justifies the ungodly. So if you're there and you know yourself to be an Adam, turn to Jesus. Turn to the Lord by faith. Trust that he died for you. Trust that he will give you this grace. The next implication, I think, for us is, is just understanding the freeness of this gift, but also gifts in general. I mean, just yesterday and throughout the Christmas season, we practiced the tradition of exchanging gifts. Horizontally and vertically, so our relationship with others and our relationship with God, this has implications for us. Do you have trouble receiving gifts from others? Do you always feel the need to give someone a gift back when they give something to you? Do you, if you're like me, do you struggle to give gifts because you want something in return? You want someone to pat you on the back for the great gift that you got them? If you struggle with understanding gifts, giving gifts, receiving gifts, this may be an indication of our view of God. Maybe we always feel unworthy. We're not good enough to receive this abundant gift from God, this abundant grace, this free gift of righteousness. Well, welcome to the club. Nobody is. Or maybe we always feel like we have to pay God back, <laughs> that we need to just live perfect lives of obedience to, get, to pay him back. 
This is not God. He's not stingy. Yes, he wants us to recognize we're unworthy, but not to wallow in despair, but so we understand that he wants to give this gift to us, to receive it. Yes, he wants us to live lives of pursuing holiness and righteousness, but not to pay him back. That's just the natural work of the Spirit, the supernatural work of the Spirit in our lives as we understand the free gift that we have received Who does not want to live and pursue the Lord when we understand that he abounds in grace to us? And God doesn't want to take this gift back. This is eternal. This is forever. Jesus never changes. He lives forever at the right hand of the Father. I remember growing up every year for Christmas, my grandparents would give me and my brothers and cousins a fresh new crisp $100 bill. We'd say, when are we getting our Benjamin Franklins for Christmas? And my grandpa would sit in his big brown leather chair and hold the envelopes out. When it was your turn to get the gift, he'd call your name, Brant, come on up. You get up, put your hand on the envelope, snatch it back. Big grin would come across his face. He would do that a few more times until he finally let you have it. Now, he was only playing games, trying to get a laugh. But sometimes I think we might view God like this. God is just waiting for us to slip up and take this free gift back. He's just waiting for me to fall one more time, one more sin, one more bad thought, one more sinful inclination, and he's taking it. That is not who God is. God will never, ever take this gift away from us. Which leads us to the third implication is that we need to know, we need to know that this is who God is. God wants us to know that this is who he is. This is who he has revealed himself to be throughout the whole of scripture. He revealed himself to Moses as the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love. We read in Psalm 31:19, "Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you." Or Psalm 86:5, "For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you." This is who God is. He is a God who abounds in grace to sinners. And he's a God who has revealed this in the person of Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, who gives grace upon grace. And it's not for those who work. It's not for those who labor to save themselves. It's not for those who are perfect. It's for the ungodly and the sinner. It's for those who simply take hold of this free gift. If you're like me, especially in this time of year, we need this reminder. We need this reminder that God's grace abounds to us in Jesus for salvation and all of it, start to finish. Even in the midst of our many sins, grace abounds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for failing 
to trust that your grace is this free, that your righteousness, the righteousness of Christ is this free and secure and eternal to save us from all of our sins, from all of your wrath. Lord, renew our minds with this truth that you are a God who gives abundant grace through Jesus, not through our works, not through how hard we try, but it comes through Jesus. So help us this morning to, to hold on to Jesus, to cling to him, to rejoice in this free gift that we have received through him. If there's anyone here, Father, who does not know you, we pray that they would receive this gift, that you by the Spirit would help them and open their eyes to see that this gift of righteousness is so free and that they would take it by holding on to Jesus. And Lord, as your sons and daughters, we ask that we will, we will understand this free grace, that we will show this grace to each other, that there will be unity and peace and love even when we sin against each other. For if you and our many sins forgive us, how can we not forgive each other? May there be unity and peace and may we learn as we give gifts to give them freely, all to represent the free gift that you've given us in Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen.